record. Recording in progress. Okay, let's start. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, sorry about last week. We, uh, I think people like the, the recording, though. Um, so today is my birthday. Happy birthday, me. Uh, but my, 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 uh, my Hebrew birthday, uh, which rarely comes out before my secular birthday, was on Friday night and Shabbat. And it was very fortunate for me because in my family, we basically we celebrate birthdays uh, on the Friday night before your birthday because that's the time the family gets together. And this year was very special because my daughters, Mariah and Michaela, both flew back from Israel on Monday for uh, Stephanie's wedding. Yay, Stephanie. And, uh, and they brought baby Orly Adele. And I got to see my granddaughter, which was amazing. And we had just really a wonderful birthday. Ariana and Stephen came back from, uh, from Camp Kaylee for the weekend with their kids. And Jonah and Lauren came from Deal, and Moses came from medical school. And uh, also it was beautiful that Shabbat I was Zohar to teach a class. And I got some great stuff. I got, just to share with everybody, my daughter made me unbelievable. She started taking all of my uh, weekly articles and putting them into a book to publish. That's the beginning. And my kids bought me this beautiful, beautiful Tehillim, which is fantastic. And so I thank everybody. But what was beautiful was that we were able to teach a class, have Seudah Shalishi, and sort of makes the birthday celebration a Seudah Mitzvah. The Gemara tells us, interesting enough, that uh, Rav Yosef, he celebrated his 60th birthday, made a birthday party. He was celebrating because he passed the time of passing away for Karet. And, uh, you know, it's for me, it's a, it's a big milestone birthday. It's 60. And 60 is a big birthday. Uh, I, I think you remember that, uh, is that Alvin in? Um, I think that... Uh, we see that uh, the, the army was from 20 to 60 now. Can't be in the army anymore. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Pirkei Avot also is a little nervous. Pirkei Avot says, you know, when a person turns 60, they basically they become old. They become old. But uh, it's interesting that uh, Arizal, he uses a different word. The Arizal, he says, the Arizal uses the word that, that he says at 60, a person attains the age of Sevilla. He, he, he could call it old age, but he really says it's not as a negative quality. He says it's a positive quality because that that person then has the ability to fulfill the things he wants to fulfill in his life. So Bezrat Hashem, I'll have the opportunity to fulfill those those things and, uh, and to continue to be able to do good things. Also the Shagat Aryeh, who we're going to mention tonight in the class, I always think of the story that he was... Uh, 60 years old when he was accepted for his position of the rabbi in a certain town and the people got all nervous that they see this old guy and this guy's going to be their rabbi and they say, well, we hired an old, old rabbi and he said, I guarantee you, if you would have hired a guy 40, you would have expected him to work for 30 years. I'm 60 and I guarantee you I'll, I'll be with Hashem's help, I'll be your rabbi for 30 years. And it says when he was 88, he fell. And uh, when he fell, he thought he was going to pass away. Pray to Hashem that he should be able to continue and, uh, and do, do his, uh, his work. And Hashem uh, blessed him, and he, was, uh, he had a refuah, and he uh, was able to work through his 90th year. So, Abed Hashem, you know, I could still look for a new job, and I could start working my 60th year. 
Um, I, I said to my sister Ellen, who's joining us right now, I said to my sister Ellen, you know, at 60, you have to remember, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't start working for another 20, 20 years. So we, uh, we still have things to do. So uh, this week, we're going to talk about the Perashah Shoftim. And, I, and as I was looking at Shoftim, and we discussed it in the synagogue on Hetzirudah uh, Shi, and I, I started something interesting. I started pre-discussing the, the, the thoughts of the class at Seudah uh, Shalishi to try to, to work them through, and then I can work them through better during the week. And uh, one of the things we, we see about Pashat Shoftim is there's so much ideas of, of connection. Uh, tonight's class is sponsored by uh, my cousins Mary and Gary Feldman in memory of Mary's dad, Joe Kassin, my uncle Joe Kassin, Yosef Ben Miriam. His yard site was today, the 3rd of Elul. So this class should be... Uh, Thanks, uh, Mary, and thanks, Gary. Um, so, Shoftim and Shalom. We end the words of Shema every day when we, we say uh, the end of Ayomer. We, we end the words of Shema with the words, Ani Adonai Elohechem Emet. Adonai Elohechem Emet. So, we end the words of Shema by saying that Hashem is truth. Hashem is truth. And some ask, is it possible for truth and shalom to coexist? We have many stories where we see can truth and, and peace exist? And we see stories where we bend the truth in order to allow peace to exist. But we have to truly understand what peace is. And once we can understand what peace is, what shalom is, we're using the word English word peace, which is really, I think, the beginning of the problem. We're translating it and, and we're not looking at what the, what the word really means. So unless we understand what shalom means, it's impossible to understand any of this. So what we're, our goal tonight, as we're going to begin the class right now, the goal is really to try to understand what is shalom. What is this concept of shalom? There are a number of portions in the Torah where we can say that those portions are rooted in the concept of shalom. And I believe this perasha is one of those portions which is rooted in shalom. What does shalom mean to you? We say shalom, hello, shalom, goodbye, shalom, peace. Shalom is probably the most well-known Hebrew word in the world. But possibly it's the least understood. Peace is based on the word pai. It's an old French word. It's understood as freedom from civil disorder. It's understood as absence of war, freedom from disturbance, tranquility, and calm. Peace in English really describes a state of being. Shalom really describes a harmonious state of relationships. We're going to see the examples as we go through. The root of the word shalom, shin lamid mem, which means either whole or complete, is really what we have to see. Shalom is really this aspect of completion. We, we see in Birkat Kohanim, we're praying that a person should have this aspect of completion. When we see someone, we say, Shalom Alechem. And the answer is, Alechem Shalom, that I am incomplete without you, and the person's acknowledging that together we become complete. I like that, Nathan, complete harmony. So let's jump back to the beginning. It helps to clarify a little bit. Light is separated from darkness. 
water is separated from dry land. The sun is separated from the moon and the stars. Human beings separated from the animal kingdom. Shabbat is the first day in the creation where there's no more chaos, where the world is complete balance. It's a whole complete within itself. Like we said, shalem. Shalem is complete. Perhaps a meaning behind Shabbat Shalom is a wish for the recipient to know the harmony and balance of the first Shabbat. A rabbi, Rav Yitzchak Abar Menel, he writes, probably four or five hundred years ago, that this is why Hashem called it, Hashem is called Shalom. He says, we know that the name of Hashem is Shalom, as we're going to get to. Because it is He, Hashem, who binds the world together and orders things according to their particular character and posture. He writes, for when things are in their proper order, Shalom will reign. The opposite of shalom is not war, but chaos. The opposite of shalom is imbalance. Let's keep this in mind as we travel through this portion and learn how Rabbeinu Ha'ari brings it all together. We begin this portion talking about judges and officers. Shoftim veshotrim. Titen lecha bechol she'arecha. Judges and officers you should put together in, in your gates. Asher Adonai Lohecha noten lecha, lishvatecha veshavtu et ha'am, mishpat sedek. Says that which Hashem is going to give you, tribe by tribe, they're going to judge the people with righteous judgment. So one of the 248 positive commandments in the Torah is to appoint judges and police. The police are basically there to make sure that the, the judges' words are enforced. Now, what about the lawyers? It's interesting. There's no lawyers. So according to Torah law, according to the law we have, the judges actually become the lawyers. The halakha states that in court, the judge has to help the accused. The Gemara explains the requirement. A guy is brought in, he has to have his rights explained. Plus the judges are going to assist him with his case. In the Sanhedrin, the judges themselves served in the roles of the prosecution and the defense. After hearing the testimony of the witness, the initial testimony, the judges would divide themselves into two groups, those inclined to exonerate the accused and those inclined to find him guilty. So that formed the teams of the prosecution and the defense. If none of the judges were inclined to argue in defense of the accused, he could not be convicted. Because someone has to see something good in him in order for him to be. There's no one who doesn't have something good. So if no one could take his side, if no one could find something positive in him, there was no case to be judged. (coughs) Rabbeinu Bachya. He writes that the power of justice is great. He says that as long as men sit in judgment, judging crime, Hashem's attribute of justice does not bother to sit, aside, sit alongside of them, but judges people by means of mercy. Should the system of justice on earth become corrupt, the attribute of deen, of justice, 
will judge mankind instead. In the class on Shabbat, we mentioned that it's interesting that we have two terms for a judge. We have shofet and we have dayan, two different terms for a judge. We mentioned that in Israel, it's interesting that we have two court systems. We have the religious court system and the secular court system. In the religious court system, the dayan is the judge. In the secular system, it's the shofet. Now we can understand maybe that the dayan, the dayan we have because when, when a rabbi is receiving smicha, we have different levels of smicha. We have, for example, a level of smicha where we have someone who's a teacher, so they have a smicha that they give him that he could be able to teach. A better level of smicha is yore yore, a person who's going to be able to give a halachic opinion. Then a higher level of smicha we have is yadin yadin. That's a person who's an expert in choshed mishpat, in the laws of monetary, monetary matters, and that person can become a dayan, a judge. So therefore, it looks like we have this, this aspect of dayan, dayan in, uh, in, as, a judgment, as a judge, to the religious court. Shofet represents the secular court in Israel, and then you have the words Dayan, Din, you have Medina, those are all related to, uh, to, to Din. Mishpat, Shofet, those are related to, to Shofet. The way the Mikubalim explain it is Din and Dayan are really from the, the left side. They're really Din. They're, they're, but Shofet has to be a balance. When we have this concept of Shofet, we have this concept of Shofet, we see the, uh, the scales. We have a left and right, and we have a balance in the center. So the shofet is looking more for balance than the dayan, which is looking for deen, for, the, for, for pure deen. So here we have the obligation to have shoftim. So the idea of a shofet here and shoftim, the way it's brought here, is there's an obligation to create harmony and balance. That's the idea of shofet. It's interesting that we also have the book of Shoftim. We have this parashah Shoftim. But we have the book in the Navi of the Shoftim. And in the book of the Shoftim, we go through a number of Shoftim, including Devorah. And she's a Shofet, and she actually is judging people. People would come to her and ask her to judge them. But we also have in the book of Shoftim, we have Shimshon, Samson. We know the story, Samson and Delilah, the long hair, the whole nine yards. Samson, Shimshon, we don't see him being a Shofet at any time. So Shofet in Sefer Shoftim is not really referring to a judge the way we're imagining, judge sitting on the bench with the hammer, but someone who's a ruler, who's a leader, and is creating harmony within the community. Pirkei Avot says, talks about places that have no police, that have no judges. Says Rabbi Hanina Segana Kohanim Omer. You should pray for the for the uh, the peace of the government. Because if it was not for the fear, he says, if it was not for the fear it inspires, then people would literally swallow each other alive. Chabakuk Navi writes, and you make man like the fish of the sea. The rabbis comment, just like the fish of the sea, each one that is bigger than his fellow swallows his fellow, so two people, were it not for the fear of the government, each one who is bigger than his fellow would follow his fellow, would swallow 
his fellow. So the idea of having judge, justice, judgment, is required in order to keep peace, in order to rec- keep harmony, in order to, to keep that within in the community. So there's a special mitzvah. In every city, we have to appoint a court. Rabbeinu Bachiah, he writes, the judicial system is divided into three levels. There is a court comprising 71, that's the Sanhedrin, known as the Great Sanhedrin, Yerushalayim. There are courts of 23 judges. And finally, there are courts of three judges. The courts of three judges are basically there to deal with monetary disputes. And they're in places where you have fewer than 120 people. But anywhere that you had 120 people, you were required to put together a mini Sanhedrin of 23. Means that more than one-fifth of the people within that community had to come together to be judges. The court consisting of 23 judges is a biblical requirement. It's known as the small Sanhedrin. And again, we see every small town had its own judge, had its own mini Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin itself, the deliberations took place by the Bet HaMikdash. The mini Sanhedrin always took place by the gates of the city. And that mini Sanhedrin of 23 that each town had to have was there to try to, try to, uh, to judge capital cases, capital punishment. No court in which there were fewer than 23 judges present had the authority to hand down a death sentence. The Gemara tells us you see, it's very, very hard to, to come to a death sentence in, uh, in Judaism. Uh, I, I said the other day that to me it's almost like uh, suicide by cop. A person to come to a death sentence has to be warned by witnesses who say, Hey, buddy, you know that what you're doing is going to get you in trouble. You know what you're doing is going to bring you the death penalty. And the guy basically has to say, yeah, I, I don't care. I'm willing to do it. So it's, it's very hard to, for something like that to happen. That's why I think I could say that a court that judged one every seven years was considered harsh. And there's an opinion, no, once in 70 years to convict someone and to kill someone was, was very harsh. But we have to imagine that, you know, those of you in, in deal, imagine that means you had a, a separate court. You would have a separate Sanhedrin of 23 one in Asbury Park, one in Lock Arbor, one in Allenhurst, one in Deal, one in West Deal, one in Elbron, one in Oakhurst, one in West Long Branch. Eh, the whole place, everyone would have its own mini Sanhedrin. You couldn't just come say, listen, we're going to put it in Deal Synagogue. Everyone come to the Deal Synagogue. No, everyone had to have its own. Or if you live here, we li- I live in Atlantic Beach, so you would have one in West Atlantic Beach, one in Atlantic Beach, one Atlantic Beach Estates, one in the the east end uh, of Atlantic Beach, one in the west end of Long Beach, one in Long Beach, one in the east end of Long Beach, one in Lido, and so on and so forth. Crazy that you would have to have so many. Why was it necessary to have so many? And not only that you had to have so many, you had to have, if you had two different tribes living in the same city, you had to have a separate court for each of those tribes so that everyone should be able to be judged, really, really judged by their peers. So you have to appoint a judge. The judge obviously has to know what he's doing. And it's interesting that in 120 people, you would find 23 people who are at a level to be a judge of Sanhedrin. And the question is, you know, what, what is Hashem is telling Moshe? You have to appoint a judge that knows what he's doing. He has to be a holy person. What do you think Moshe is going to do? Appoint a Rasha, special halakha to be a holy man. 
Dorachayim Hakadosh, he writes, he says, he says that that Yishvot Tevel Besedek, he judges the universe with equity. He understands the word Sedek in this verse as referring to the celestial court. According to the Gemara Betza, this court decides on Rosh Hashanah each individual's livelihood for the coming year. So what's interesting is, according to what the Orachayim is writing, he says that if a terrestrial judge, if a judge on earth is deciding between two litigants on the basis of the Torah law, all he's doing is merely publicizing a decision that was already made in the Bet Din Shel Shamayim. As any decision not based on the law of the Torah would upset the judgment made in Bet Din Shel Shamayim concerning this individual's livelihood. And therefore, he says, that they should judge the people with a righteous judgment means that these judges on earth hand down to the people the decisions already reached by the tribunal in heaven. So the Bed-Din Shalmata, the lower Bed-Din, is literally giving out decisions that were already made by Bed-Din Shalmala, the Bed-Din in heaven. It says about Moshe, Titen Lecha, you should appoint for yourself, seeing that Moshe Rabbeinu, he risked his life to save the Jew in Egypt who was being beaten by the Egyptian, who would have been killed by the Egyptian. And also we see Moshe Rabbeinu when B'nai Israel were going to be punished for the Chet HaEgel. He spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain trying to get forgiveness for B'nai Israel, And he linked his survival to their being forgiven. Therefore Moshe is the one who's given this command of, of judging, of judgment, of justice. And the Pasuk says, Sedek, Sedek, Tirdof. Justice, justice, you should follow. Leman, in order that, Tichyeh, that you should live, Ve'yerashta et ha'aret, and you will inherit the land, Asher Adonai Elohecha noten lecha. That you're going to inherit the land that Hashem is going to give you. Rashi is saying, look, look to do the best that you can in judgment, because you must do that in order to inherit the land. The Gemara is telling us that to get to Eretz Israel, to inherit the land of Eretz Israel, the way is through having a court system. A person is going to live longer by having a court system. And the question is, what's the connection between a court system and inheriting the land and living in the land? Maybe we're going to say, you know, you avoid criminal activity. It's easier to live there. Who wants to go into New York with so much criminal activity today? You say you want to avoid the place. So you want a place that has justice. It's interesting. The Torah is really uh, against defund, uh, defund the police, right? Even though it's interesting, the, the criminal justice system in the Torah, is, is, is the, the way it is put together is so much different than, than the system we have. So the question we're going to leave this part of the class with is what's the connection between the court system and inheriting Eretz Israel, The next subject, appoint a king. And the Pasuk tells us, el When you come to the land, Asher which Hashem is giving to you, and you shall possess it. You're going to live there. And you're going to say, Asima alay melech. I will set upon me a king. 
Kechol HaGoyim, like all the nations, Asher Sevivotai, which are around me. So we have, we, we, we got to the point that we have justice, so we're going to inherit the land. Now that we inherit the land, we're going to want to appoint a king. There's a machloket among the Rishonim, whether appointing a king is one of the 248 positive commandments or it's optional. The Gemara and Abu Dazara talks about certain mitzvot that were given to Moshe Rabbeinu as optional mitzvot or maybe subject to. We mentioned in the class also that when B'nai Israel received the Torah on Har Sinai, that what happened, they received the Torah on Har Sinai and they went to the level of Adam Harishon before the sin. Death was wiped out. Still Moshe spent 40 days up in Shamayim getting laws on inheritance, on death, on all things relating to death. And the question is, if death was swallowed up at the time and only came back after the Chet Egel, why was Moshe getting these laws? And Hashem would say, listen, if they stay good, we don't need them. But subject to, we may need them. So this law of a king is one of those subject to. We see Shemuel HaNavi, when they come to Shmuel and they say to Shmuel, we want a king like everyone else. Shmuel turns to them and says, what do you want a king? You have Hashem, he's the king. You have me. What do you need a king? So, but others say it's one of the 248 positive mitzvot. We can't import a king, no foreign king. It's maybe where the United States got the law that, you know, the, the president has to be uh, born here. And the laws of the king are interesting. There's three laws that the, the Torah brings out specifically here. And it says that he can't acquire many horses for himself. And the, the Mephashim explained that the horses one gets from Egypt and it's going to force us to go back down to Egypt. He can't have many wives. What's many wives? David HaMelech had six. The Navit Natan told him, if this is too little, you could have more like them and more like them, meaning you could have six and six more, meaning 18. So enough wives is 18 for a king, no more than that. So we see Shlomo HaMelech had a lot of horses, he had a lot of wives, and the other problem was the Torah says you can't have much silver and gold, only enough to pay the bills, enough to pay the army, enough to make sure the government runs, you can't have too much. And those are the three, three things with regard to the king. And when the king is sitting on his throne, he should write himself, it's interesting, Mishneh HaTorah. Mishneh HaTorah, Rashi writes two Torah scrolls. One that is placed in the treasury, the other that goes with him. Some of the Mephashim say that just like he wore his tefillin, he would wear a Torah on his forearm. He would carry his Torah bound to him on his forearm. So he has this obligation to have this Torah. And Vehaita Imo, and it should be with him. And he should read it all the days of his life. In order that he should know that he should fear Hashem. To watch, to obey all of the words of this Torah. And these, these precepts to do them. He says further, so a person has to be, he has to be, he has to be afraid of Hashem. He has to learn, he has to keep the laws. This is the king. 
It's a simple explanation that the king is not above the law. So, so far we have judges and justice in order to inherit the land. And once they're a king who's maybe optional, and the king has to be very careful in his role. The question we have is, what is really the purpose of the king and the true role of the king among, um, among Am Yisrael? Now we're going to skip further. We skip to, to Perak Yudchet. And now we start to talk about the Kohanim. Now we have the Kohanim that we can talk about in so many other places. Here, why are we talking about the Kohanim and what are we going to talk about the Kohanim? It says, This should be the, 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 the judgment or the law with regard to the priests among the nation. From anyone who, who offers a sacrifice. This is anyone who slaughters an animal. Uh, if a, if a, a cow or a, or a sheep. And uh, he has to give to the Kohen the shoulder, the arm basically, the shoulder, the, the jaws, and the keva. The keva, the English translates as the maw, I guess, the sort of like the stomach of the animal. So the Kohanim is here. Moshe decides to write in the book of Devarim. Remember, the book of Devarim was was optional for Moshe. He decides to bring these laws here in this perasha that the Kohanim are going to get certain portions of the animal, the sheep of the from the sheep and the cow and the goat. Uh, I remember when uh, when my brother Victor he bought a pregnant uh, donkey. He brought the pregnant donkey in Eretz Israel in order for the donkey to give birth, and he would be able to do the mitzvah of Peter Rechem of the Chamor, and he exchanges the Chamor for a sheep, and then when they slaughter the sheep, they gave the certain parts to a Kohen. The excuse today, where we don't give it to the Kohen, is we don't know who is a Kohen, so the Kohen can't claim it. But if you want to do the mitzvah, you go to the Shochet, and you give those parts to the Kohen. The, the Kohen is the one who's entitled to it. So like we say, our excuse is we don't know. The Kohen can't prove today he's a Kohen. We know the Gaon Mevilna, he writes that, you know, even though when he was a baby, he was a child, he had a uh, Pidyon Haben. He did a Pidyon Haben again for himself a number of times. A number of times he did the Pidyon because he would meet a Kohen and he would re-redeem himself until he met someone, Rappaport. He met this person, Rappaport, and he knew this person, Rappaport, has... Uh, has a connection, has this family tree of Kehuna, and he was, he was fine with that. We know within the Syrian community, we mentioned that the Tawil family, when many of them, when they go up to the Torah, they give their name and they say, Mishpachat Eli. Mishpachat Eli HaKohen. They trace their lineage all the way to the time of the, of the first Bet HaMikdash, the time of, no, before the first Bet HaMikdash, of the time of uh, of uh, of Shmuel Hanavi and uh, and uh, Te'eli Kohen. Now it's interesting. How do we know who's a Kohen? Many people could claim their Kohen. The Gemara says that people who needed Parnassah, people who needed to earn a living, would claim that they're a Kohen. They claim they're a Kohen in order to to collect. Today it's interesting that you can actually do genetic testing. It was done in 1997. 
someone in Israel did this uh, genetic testing. The problem with the genetic testing is that we can see that there's a Y chromosome that appears to show only on Kohanim. And this Y chromosome seems to connect Kohanim, uh, and it, meaning it's coming from the father. And the, this Y chromosome is coming from father to son, father to son. That's why it's on the Y side. And it shows that people are Kohanim even from different parts of the world. And they have similar, similar genealogy, even though they're from different parts of the world. But the problem is that you could still have a Kohen who has pure lineage, but they're halal. So they're not, uh, not the Kohen. So that's part of the problem in just doing the, uh, the genetic testing. So we have misora, father to son, that the person's a kohen. But still, uh, unfortunately, especially in the last century, we have people who have lost that connection. They're not sure. They're not sure. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. There's a story that, that we told over that there was a rabbi from Muncie. And this rabbi from Muncie, he... Uh, he, uh, he, he his father was a Baal Teshuvah. His father was a Baal Teshuvah. He was in Lakewood. His father had come from Los Angeles. His grandfather was not religious at all. His father learned in Lakewood. The, the son now became a rabbi. He had a child, and the child had a pidyon. And then they found out later on, they got a copy of the grandfather's marriage uh, ketubah, and it showed that the family was Levi'im. So we, we never know. We never know. So... So now, now, so so we, we leave here. This was the question. Really, is why is the kohen getting these parts? What's the connection in this week's parasha? Now, the next part of the Torah is telling us about. We jump to Perikhaf, the beginning of Perikhaf, going to war. When you go to war against your enemy, of course, it's against your enemy. Many rabbis take all of this to mean you're going to war against. La milchama, instead of le milchama, you're going to war. It's a regular war that you have. This is a war against your yetzer But let's leave it at the war. You go against your physical enemy. You see horse and chariot uh, and a great nation greater than you. Don't be afraid of them. Because God is with you. God who brought you from Eretz Mitzrayim. So against the enemy, who do you think you're going to fight? You think you're going to fight a friend? You see lots of horses and chariots. You don't be afraid of them. Hashem is going with you. That's crucial to remember. Hashem is with you. And it should be when you come close to the war. And then what happens? <laughs> Jonah. So then when you come close to the war, and the, the Kohen, who's the priest of the war, he comes and he speaks to the, to the nation. So we have a mitzvah to a point. This is like a Kohen Gadol, specific for war. He gives a speech, once at the draft, off, the draft city office, once at the, at the battlefront. And he says, He says to them, Shema Yisrael, listen Israel, you're coming close today, against your enemy, a war. Don't be afraid in your heart, don't be afraid, he says. And don't, don't, don't be frightened from them. Ki Adonai Lechem, God, your God, who goes with you to fight with you against them to save you. It says that, that you should have a merit to be saved. And then he goes on to say, but let me tell you something. If by chance you have a 
house that you didn't live in, you know what? Go home to the house. If you have a vineyard that you planted and you didn't eat the fruits, go home to the vineyard. If you got married and you got engaged and you, got, and you didn't get married or you got married and you weren't together with your wife, go home and be with your wife. And then they say, and if you're afraid, go back. Rabbi Akiva says, what does it mean you're afraid? He says, it can't be simple like that. And he answers that what's going to be? The Gemara tells us that whoever's afraid, whoever's afraid that they did a sin. And what's the sin that the Gemara says? The sin is saying that if a person did a small sin, that he talked between the tefillin shel yad, tefillin shel rosh. And the question that we ask is, if the guy was afraid he did a sin, you're going to war, do teshuvah, go to the mikveh, go, and now go to war. Why are you afraid? Because you did something like talking between Yishtabach uh, and Yotzer Or, or the Rosh and the Yad of the Tefillin. The Rishami, uh, it, it, it's, it's bringing certain proofs. So many of the people are going to run away. We told the story a number of times. The story is in Brisk. In Brisk, the Maskilim, the Enlightened Ones, they put on a play. They put on a play for all the people. And on this play... They rented the basement, they put on the theater, the basement of the singer, they were going to make a theater, they put a hundred people on the stage. And they, a guy comes out and announces the hundred people, we're going to go battle for Eretz Yisrael, we're going to battle to take over Eretz Yisrael. And you have a hundred people standing there with their guns, ready to go and fight. And all of a sudden the Kohen says, well, anyone who has a house he didn't live on, go away. Ten people off the stage. Anyone who has a vineyard... Go home and eat. Ten people off the stage. Anyone who got married, didn't be, wasn't in with his wife yet, go off the stage. Ten more people. Then he gets up and he says, well, now we're ready to go. But if anyone's afraid, get off the stage. And all of a sudden, everyone disappears from the stage with the exception of the Vilna Gaon and the Shagat Aryeh. Those are the two guys left, two guys with long beard holding their rifle. And all of a sudden, each one says to the other, Bechavod, 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 you go in front of me, you go in front of me. And the curtain comes down and the people start laughing. And they ran to the rabbi, to the rabbi of Brisk, Rav Salvechik, and they said to him, look how horrible it is what these people are doing. And Rav Salvechik says to them, you should understand, Rav Chaim Salvechik, he says to them, you should understand that what they're putting on is the truth. But the only thing they're not telling you is that these two great rabbis win the war. These two rabbis win the war. This was the special parts of the army. Interesting also that a person going to the army, he had to be complete in all of his parts. It's strange because we have the stories of the army of, uh, of Bar Kokhva where possibly they bit their, their thumb off, crazy things. Says, but the person in the army had to have all his body parts, just like a Kohen. Just like a Kohen, he had to have all of his body parts, just like the Sanhedrin. It's interesting that when Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was going to have a pacemaker, he had to make sure that it wouldn't, it wouldn't disqualify him. That if, if eventually the Sanhedrin was redone, if he could be part of that Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, just like a judge has to be perfect, the Sanhedrin has to be perfect. Kohen has to be perfect. The soldier has to be perfect. What's this idea of perfection? We see also some hint here of this concept of shilemut, of completion. Let's jump to the Haftarah. This is the fourth of the seventh of the Haftarot. The Chachamim decided what's the end of the Haftarah. 
We're going to read Manavu al Heharim Ragle Mevaser. It goes Mashmiya Shalom Mevaser Tov. Mashmiya Shalom, announcements of peace of Shalom Mevaser Tov, announcement of good things. This is how the, the, the Haftarah is ending. We bring peace, things we expect. Shalom again, this word Shalom. Long story short, one of the names of Hashem, Shalom. Shalom, we can't say in the bathroom. Rabbi Hari says, this name, really, what is it? It's not simply a reference to Hashem. Shalom is the vehicle that connects a person to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. All other names refer to Hashem as a name. Talk to Him, entity to entity, but it doesn't reflect a connection. It doesn't reflect a link. The word shalom, the name shalom, reflects a link, a connection to Hashem. The connection is shalom. The Arizal says, the true relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is based on shalom. The Mishnah tells us, Eliyahu Navi is going to come to make shalom. If someone asks, what's the job of Eliyahu Navi? The Mishnah goes through, the Halakha goes through, the bottom line is that he comes to do shalom. The Gemara says, what's shalom? It, it, and it brings proof from the end of the Tanakh. And we see at the end of the Tanakh, it says, I'm sending to you Eliyahu Navi. And what's his job? He's going to return the hearts of the fathers to their sons and the sons to their fathers. All those souls whose yichus was disrupted, their hearts will be, will be corrected to do teshuvah. All fathers and sons, explains the rabbis, will be reconnected. Eliyahu Navi will bring everyone back to Hashem. Eliyahu Navi is going to create shalom, the link between us and Hashem. We say every day at the end of Amidah, "O say shalom bimromav," who makes peace in the in the high ups. "O say shalom bimromav," who yase shalom aleinu ve'alko Israel. Shalom aleinu. What do you mean on you? It should be shalom benenu, shalom between you, not shalom aleinu, shalom on you. But the understanding is shalom is a connection. It's this tool between us and Kakatosh Baruch Hu. Shalom brings everything together. We say in the Kaddish, Yeheh Shelema Raba Min Shemaya. It should be a great a great peace min shemaya from heaven. It's the same as Ose Shalom Bimromav. Hu Min Shemaya. The Ari says the power of Kaddish is in these words of Ose Shalom Bimromav, of Yeheshilemaraba. There should be a great peace, a great connection, a great unification, a great harmony. Shalom is a name, it's a connection, is a link. The Gemara says, when you say goodbye to a person, you have to say to them, Lech le shalom. Never say Lech be shalom. We mentioned also Saturday night. The Ari says, one would imagine it would be the opposite. You could say to someone, Lech be shalom, go with peace. 
It seems go with peace sounds good, not lech lech shalom, go to peace. The rabbis explain, lech lech shalom, go in peace, is a lovely sentiment to express to someone. But we have to be careful never to say lech be shalom. The Gemaran Berachot tells us, one who takes leave of his friend should always say lech lech shalom. Never lech be shalom. We find that Yitro told Moshe Rabbeinu, Lech le shalom, he was successful. Yonatan tells David, Lech le shalom, he's successful. But unfortunately, David HaMelech tells Avshalom, Lech be shalom. And Avshalom not only is not successful, he loses his life. And it's for this reason that when we address the deceased, we say Lech be shalom. It's appropriate that when we have a friend going, we say Lech le shalom. But like we said, when a person passes away, it's Lech be. Hagaon HaRav Avigdor Nevensal. He says, one who takes leave of a dead person should not say Lech Shalom. He says Lech Shalom based on the Mo'ed Katan. The expression Lech Shalom implies going towards a peace. One who is alive is forbidden to remain stationary. He must constantly ascend upward towards the next level. This is similar to what we discussed last week. But one who is unfortunately dead can no longer perform its vote. He cannot attain more than he already has in his lifetime. So therefore we say to this person, Go be shalom, go in peace. The Pasuk states, Ora chayim lemala lemaskil leman sur mata. A path of life awaits above for the intelligent one so that his soul will turn away from the grave below. There is no remaining in one place. One either ascends or descends. The dead person, Beshalom, he can't do anything anymore. But the live person has to always be growing, has to always be moving forward. We see in the Sichot of the, of the, of the Lubavitch, it says, Avimelech, his people, they weren't interested in the welfare of Yitzchak, not wanting to wish him well. What did they say to Yitzchak? They said, Lech Beshalom. They hoped something unpleasant would happen to him. It was almost like making a curse, but to their amazement, not only did he avoid a mishap, but on the contrary, he was blessed with tremendous success. So when Yitzchak asked them, why suddenly do you come to me? They replied, because when we left you last time, we wished you to go be shalom. We hoped you would encounter trouble. Seeing your success, we're convinced that you are the Baruch, you're the blessed of Hashem. Therefore, our evil intentions can't affect you. This is the idea of go to peace. Mesechet Berachot says when a person leaves a city, he should say a prayer to Hashem, Totsienu, take us out, le shalom. You should take me, le shalom, help me leave this town, help me go towards peace, to that linkage, to that place, to that place of connection with you. Rabbeinu Hari says, all shalom, shalom ba'aretz, shalom in our shalom, always, it's a linkage. Every time we find the word ten shalom, it's an idea of a linkage. When you win a war, Hashem is with you. What is the Kohen telling the soldiers? Don't be afraid because Hashem is with you. There's a linkage. There's a connection. This whole perasha is really about peace and harmony with Hashem. The Midrash says, what's the purpose of the judges? To make peace with Hashem. As long as we have judges and judgment, Hashem sits with mercy with us. But when we don't, then what happens? He comes in judgment. The first world war, what was that? The war, 
the, the war of the four kings, the five kings, when we see the beginning, the door haflagah, the generation of, of dispersal, we see at the end of Noah, what was the purpose of their power? What did they make the tower for? To wage war against Hashem. Every sin, in some way, is going to war against Hashem. In a time of war, if a person is sinning, don't go. Because if the person sinned, he's disconnected and Hashem is not with him. We mentioned maybe the reason that the sin is talking between the tefillin shel yad and the tefillin shel rosh is because the tefillin shel yad represent action. The tefillin shel rosh represent thought. So if a person is breaking the connection between thought and action, he's disconnected. There's no harmony within him. There's no connection to Hashem. He can't go to war because he has to be afraid that Hashem won't be with him. He has to have self-harmony in order to then have harmony with Hashem. To win the war, you need linkage. That's why the Kohen is given these specific parts. Rashi says, why these parts? He says, Pinchas is the first breach shalom. Pinchas created this linkage, this breach shalom, because there was no harmony. He brought harmony back together. He creates the linkage. It's called shalom. Pinchas, when he killed Zimri, he killed to create shalom, to create harmony. He had the spear in his right hand, that's the zeroah that the Kohen gets. He said a prayer with his mouth, that's the jaw that the Kohen gets. And he hit them in the, in the beten, in the, in the, in the, the maws, the, the translation in English, in the stomach. That, that's why the, the Kohen gets it belly. Thanks, Nathan. He, 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 and therefore, those three parts, because Minhas made the, the Brit Shalom, the connection with Shalom, those parts go to the Kohen. So this whole idea of giving these parts to the Kohen is furthering, showing us that everything is about making this linkage, making this Shalom. Shoftim the Shotrim, every town, small town, doesn't matter if there's another town next door with a court. Each has to have its own system because each has to have shlemut. Each has to have shalom. When Eliyahu Navi is going to come, what's his job? To restore the link of shalom. He's going to return the hearts of the fathers to their sons. And the hearts of the, father, of the sons to the father. The whole idea of Eliyahu, the whole idea of, the, of this parasha is this idea of linkage. Shalom means linkage. We have to make sure we have a mitzvah, appointed judge. We have police to prevent people from doing wrong, from creating disharmony. We can't lose the link. In Eretz Yisrael, we have bimei shofet ha-shofetim. We have many times it tells us that we have the times of the shofet, of the shoftim, and there was no judges, judgment in the land. What do you mean you have judges with no judgment? In root, we're, we're, we're critical of the judges. Why? Because you need judges to do their job. You need judges to create harmony. That's the whole role of the judge. And since what's happening is they're not creating harmony, what do we have to do? We bring the king. The king really is the ultimate cop. You need a king in order to restore shalom. He could kill on his own decision. It's not peace, quiet life. That's not what shalom means. Shalom is in order to restore the link. We're in the month of Elul. The kavanah for the month of Elul 
of the Shem Havaya, of the Yud in the Hey, of the Vav in the Hey, the Kavana was Hey Hey, Vav Hey. Hey Hey, Vav Hey. I like that. You need rabbis who are going to give Musar, not crowd pleasers. Thanks. He says, really, you have Hey Hey, Vav Hey. What's Hey Hey, Vav Hey? It comes from Pasuk Ustaka, Tihye Lanu Ki. From the last letters. What is Sedaka? We think Sedaka is putting the money in the Pushka. No, Sedaka is Sedek. Sedaka is the Sedek is the linkage to Shalom. The Arizal says Sedaka is to have linkage. It says it brings the Pasuk Rodef Sedaka Bachesed Yimsahayim. The person who searches after Sedaka and, and Chesed, it, it's justice and kindness, he's gonna find life. This is the idea Sedaka is related to Shalom. We don't make peace with someone. Our enemies are created from the sins. We explained last week in Re'eh. One who potentially loses their protection, they lose their heavenly force field, they allow the enemies to attack. That's the problem. What happens is when we lose, when? When we stop going. The idea of Lech Shalom is to continue, keep going, keep moving, keep going, keep going, keep going. Because as you go, you have potential, you have protection. We say Shema Yisrael. The Kohen, he's restoring the linkage. The whole idea that we read this parasha always at the beginning of Elul is to restore the linkage. How? Via the mitzvot. We say we should have shalom in the aretz. Not peace on the ground with the neighbors. Shalom with shalom. Lech le shalom. Go to peace. Always moving, always working, always growing. This creates the force field around us to protect us. This shows that Hashem is with you. We have Megillat Rut, Boaz, Boaz with his workers in the field. What do they say? Hashem imachem, God is with you. Yivarechecha Hashem. Hashem should bless you. It's the whole idea again of linkage that Hashem is with you. Birkat Kohanim is bound with Shalom. It's linkage. There must be, the Kohen has to have in his mind, his link to the people in order for the blessing to work. If the Kohen is disconnected in any way from the people, there's no Beracha. We're blessed in our synagogue. We have a Kohen who's all love. All love for the people. His name is Baruch and he gives Beracha. He has a beautiful, beautiful way about him. And his blessing is 100% connects to the people. And this is really what the rabbis talk. Where does the blessing of Kohen come? We say Shalom. We say Kaddish. The blessing is to have linkage. Shalem, shalemut. We don't want to have a break in the chain. We don't want to lose. We don't have the cracks in the skin. We don't want to let the enemy invade. We don't want to leave an opening for the enemy. We have to remember always the police and the judges maintain peace. You need in every town. It's crucial. Shalemut is the connection. We were kicked out because of idolatry. It's like drilling a hole under the seat of the boat and the water is going to come in. He says, punishment's going to come if that's what happens because we create a disunity, a disunity with Hashem. As we go into Elul, the idea of Elul is really, I am for my beloved, my beloved is for me. Hashem is coming out in the field. What does that mean? It means Hashem is giving us a chance to say, you know what, Hashem, I'm going to put away what I did. I'm going to put the past. I want to reconnect. Hashem is reaching out to hand. What do we have to do? We have to reach out together. It's a two-way street. This time of Elul is really an invitation to us to clean up everything from the whole month, the whole year. 
we're going to come to Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is Yom Ma'amat Adin, the day of judgment. If we don't think that Rosh Hashanah works, we have to realize that everything that's been happening to us for the last year and a half, all this craziness came about from Rosh Hashanah from two years ago. Two years ago, everything that we could never have imagined in a million years came from Rosh Hashanah. We should prepare ourselves. The gift of Elul is to prepare ourselves for Yom Ma'amat Adin. Bezrat Hashem, we're going to do that. We're going to have a connection. We're going to have shalom, shalom ba'aretz, shalom among all of us. Hashem will protect us and bless us. We'll be protected from all the negative forces. We'll continue lech le shalom. Go to shalom. Never stop. Keep moving. Keep growing. Keep learning. And Bezrat Hashem will have a wonderful and blessed year. Thank you, everybody. Bezrat Hashem, we're going to post it and... Uh, I mentioned in the beginning, uh, God willing, we're going to have uh, uh, someone reached out to me through uh, Torah anytime, and we should have Bezrat Hashem uh, podcast should be able to be published so everyone can listen to the podcast whenever they want to listen to the podcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Did I let everyone talk? Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Shabbat shalom. Thank you. Recording stopped. David, why is it...